The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. With Daikin. Use less energy to heat your home this winter. D-A-I-K-I-N dot I-E. Your energy, your choice. On News Talk. Hello and you're very welcome along to the latest episode in the Home Show podcast. I'm Sinead Ryan, your host, coming up today. Food historian Regina Sexton joins me on a journey of Christmas food throughout the ages from medieval to modern times. Donna Cahill from the Irish Georgian Society talks us through grants for thatched, listed or protected buildings. Everyone's favourite food and wine buff Tom Dorley will be stopping by to go through his veg, hits and misses from 2023. And former Home of the Year winner Jenny Sheehan will have some creative Christmas wrapping and edible gift ideas this festive season. If you'd like to get involved in the show today, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You can find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100 and you can text us at 53106 for 30 cent. And remember, you can listen back to the show or any of our shows indeed and our podcasts. They're all up on the News Talk website or on the News Talk app, which is powered by Go Loud. Now, we have a show stuffed with food this week and I suppose uh, there's no better time of year for it. But from medieval times to today's dinner table, some things haven't changed. Uh, Now, sustainability is a byword these days, but of course it was the way that people naturally lived centuries ago in a time when there was a lot less stuff uh, around the place. And there's a huge focus on local and fresh ingredients, so I am looking for to asking food critic Tom Dorley about what's going on his Christmas table, given he grows all of his own. If you'd like to get involved, well then please get in touch with us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You'll find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100 and we would love to hear from you. You're very welcome along. Now, Christmas is, of course, a special time of year, time of giving and sharing, community and family. But when it comes down to it, a lot of it, you know, boils down to food. (laughs) And there's lots of it around this time of year. But where did our Christmas food traditions come from? Well, I to find out and explore it, I food historian Regina Sexton joining me now. Regina, you're very welcome along to the home show. Good morning, Sinead. I'm delighted to be here. Now, it's fair to say we didn't always celebrate Christmas the way we do now, especially when we were more governed by the sun and the seasons. Uh, Yeah, that's right. I I suppose food at Christmas is really kind of interesting and fascinating to think about because I think for most of us, it's at Christmas time, food becomes sort of inflamed in our consciousness and everything has to be right. And we, with a set tradition, a set package of foods and so on. Um, So food preparation and buying food kind of consumes us at Christmas in many ways. And I suppose if you want to think about food at Christmas time and connect it even to the most elemental things that are happening around us that we tend to forget about in a present day context. Well, a lot of us anyway, not all of us. But these sort of elemental things like thinking about the sun and thinking about the agricultural year, um, they have directed and impacted on how we have built our relationship with food. So the first thing is that the sun is low in the sky. Um, it's not as uh, it's not as radiant and as powerful and as present as it is in the middle of summer, for instance. So that's why the solstice is such an important time. So with the sun um, uh, in a different pattern, I suppose, in the cosmos, the agricultural year is a bit more do- dormant. Um, 
So this idea of thinking about food, securing food, maybe culling back animals because you can't keep them into the lean and hungry months of uh, late winter and spring. These were all sort of looming large uh, in people's minds, particularly farmers and an, ag- an agricultural society. Mm. So the sun and agriculture intimately bound together uh, in terms of directing how we thought about food at this time of the year. Now, the church, of course, was also prominent with its rules around food and fasting and key dates in the calendar at winter. It was. And in fact, you know, a lot of us would still remember this sort of strong presence of religious observance and how that affected food and our food behaviours as well. Um, and I suppose some of us as well will, will will still enact these kind of traditions because of our personal piety behaviours and all of that. But at one point in time, I suppose, in the past and through time, um, the church was fairly strong in imposing this relationship on the faithful between fasting and feasting. Mm. So at this time of the year, uh, we would have been in the Advent season. And the Advent season is a time of fasting and abstinence, particularly from richer foods like meat and dairy produce. So that Advent season lasted for kind of the end of November. It's for four Sundays between the end of November and into Christmas. So that Advent um, season uh, would have been very important to people in in the religious calendar, I suppose. So they were holding back from um, overconsumption of these rich foods. Mm. And that Advent season um, concluded, finished um, at Christmas Eve. So Christmas Eve, and especially after maybe Mass on Christmas Eve, this was the time when the Christmas feast began. Uh, So that was really special for people. And that remembered, I suppose, strongly for Irish people in a rural context, this idea of starting the Christmas feast after Mass on Christmas Eve. And of course, the 12 days of Christmas only begin then, you know, right up to to the 6th of January. So let's get to some of that feasting. And um, look, turkey is the mainstay of the modern dinner table. But it wasn't always uh, so, Regina. Or how far back does it go? Because it's not, it wasn't a native bird to Ireland. No, exactly that. And the turkey is, you know, the turkey is the main feature of the Christmas table today. And it's a fascinating history because the turkey isn't native. The turkey is from the Americas. Um, So it had to come to Europe and it came to Europe because of Europe's colonising activities in the New World, from the old world of Europe to the New World of the Americas. So the turkey comes as part of that cultural exchange Mm. and it makes its way all over Europe. It makes its way to uh, England. And then because of Ireland's association with England, it comes to Ireland and it's present in Ireland from the late 16th century onwards. Now, the the goose uh, is known as the poor man's turkey. And was that just because it was smaller and it was maybe not considered as prestigious at the at the Christmas table in in times gone by? Yes, um, I suppose. Like if you, we've talked about turkey and now we're talking about geese and what they are, I suppose, are sort of um, big elements of farmyard fowl. It's a big bird. We want a big bird for the table. And that presence even, that symbolic presence of a big bird remembers earlier medieval feasting patterns where big birds like things like swans and peacocks, cranes and turkeys um, were part of medieval feasting patterns. Mm. They were the foods of the elite. They demonstrated special occasions. And then as you move through time, there's this kind of interplay between the turkey and the goose. Um, the goose, for 
especially again when you go back to rural Ireland, because Ireland is a rural country until well into the twentieth century. Mm. Agriculture is the is is the is the main occupation. So for women, for example, on um, farm holdings, uh, they were keeping farmyard fowl. The turkey was something that they reared to sell on. It was bringing money back into the farm. So instead of eating your pin money, for instance, um, you would consume a goose instead because the goose was of lower status, if you like. Okay. Um, so, so, and then that kind of interplay goes on through time. The, the turkey then becomes commonplace. Then people want something that's unusual and it flips back to the goose again and all sorts of stuff. And I suppose it's kind of just the human condition really where, um, you know, food is fashion and how we build relationship with it depends yeah. on so many different things. And I suppose it's kind of popular now again. I yeah. Think and in modern times when you have the choice of like anything you you know you could have anything um maybe just the goose then is the little bit more unusual way to go down especially maybe if you have a smaller number of people now the whole plum pudding christmas pudding like that is a very very ancient tradition and uh but there used to be a plum porridge so did that come first or is it just a different type of a dish i've never heard of it Oh yeah, well, <laughs> well, maybe you're better off. We don't, we don't do the plum porridge anymore, but <laughs> right, good. You you, I suppose you could see a kind of an evolutionary line from this wet concoction event, the more solid um, round ball of pudding that we eat today. So the plum porridge, uh, you see references to this in some of the kind of the earlier recipe books. I'm talking now about before the the. The, or into the 18th century, even before that. And what it is, it's really interesting, is that it's a sweet, savoury dish. Um, the prime ingredient is a shin of beef uh, that's that's cooked up with sort of grain, spices and sugar. Uh, oh, right. to this, yeah, to give you this kind of, um, what would we say, a kind of a beefy, spicy, sweet porridge, uh, soupy type thing. Ooh. <laughs> if you're so inclined. Doesn't sound very appetising. <laughs> no, I actually have made it at some point. I've made people eat it. I have to say so. Apologies to those people. <laughs> so probably still traumatised by the experience. Uh, and then what happens is that becomes more solid when you put those ingredients and, you know, change the consistency, obviously, into a pu- pudding cloth, cloth and boil it as your pudding. So the pudding becomes tied to, to uh, Christmas festivities. It becomes one of these dishes that you nearly have to have. Mm. Uh, if you don't have it, you don't have a proper Christmas, so to speak. But, and actually, but it was originally boiled, like that That concoction was boiled in... In a pudding, either, well, I mean, originally it would have been boiled in the stomach cavity of an animal. It then gets transferred to the pudding cloth, which is like a piece of fabric that has been greased and floured. Mm. And then tied into this almost Dickensian storybook uh, globe of pudding mm. um, that we we sort of associate romantically with Christmas. And then, of course, today we, if we do make puddings ourselves or we we buy them, they're in the pudding bowl. Um, and I think for many people at the moment, there is a kind of a turning away from the pudding. They find it too heavy because it is bringing in all of those really heavy ingredients of Christmas. Yeah, um, fruit, fat spice, alcohol and, you know, fairly big amounts of sugar, you know. So we're kind of turning away from that heaviness. And now it's been replaced by, you know, things like um, chocolate Christmas puddings or salted caramel Christmas puddings. Mm. Same shape, same idea, 
same tight. But no animal intestines involved at any stage in those, (laughs) which is an added plus. I am speaking with Regina Sexton, food historian, about our ancient traditions when it comes to Christmas food. And Regina, I'm struck by that idea of the plum porridge or the plum pudding, which was originally beef and spices and fruit. So it's kind of that that kind of meat and, and, and sweet thing. But the mince pie was pretty much like that as well. What was the origins of that? So the mince pie, like pies for, again, as you go through the, the medieval period and in through the uh, 16th and 17th centuries, in through, all through time, actually, the pies were a very important feature of how people cooked and how they consumed food. But a very enriched pie in the form of one with a meat element, again, with all of the spices, the fruits and the sugar, again, tied itself to the Christmas festivities. So you did have the meat element remembered in the word mince. So it was minced meat. It could be beef. It could be mutton. uh, It could be thong, which was really very important. And then if you wanted to, to have a mince pie for a fast day, you could have fish minced pies. Ooh. Okay. And if you, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not kind of selling the, um, I'm not <laughs> selling the traditional Christmas. Really, I realise that. And what would people mix this with? Then again, fruit, or or did, was it always a savoury pie originally? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of neither, and it's both. So, and I think because it has the fruit element, it has the sweet element, it has the element, alum, animal element in, in the fruit and the suet, um, and then it's encased in the pastry. A container itself. And I suppose if we kind of hover over that idea, we've already kind of talked about these elements in the plum pudding. What you see emerging are the main features of Christmas food. And the main Christmas features of Christmas food are a big meat element, a big spice element, a big sugar element, especially, and a big spice, a spicy element. Because these ingredients are the ingredients of wealth, of elite food patterns. And this is what people wanted for the special occasion at Christmas. Yeah, we still kind of do it. These are expensive ingredients. I mean, sugar and especially refined sugars were very expensive to make and, and kind of marked you out as being very special uh, in, terms, in terms of that. Uh, now, when it comes to then um, the other uh, big element, which is hopefully fully dessert now, Regina, don't let me down by telling me they ever put meat in the trifle. Now, I'm not aware of that, but I suppose. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, we could maybe, the, the trifle is coming out as, as, as the good character in the story here. Um, and again, the, the trifle is a continuing older traditions. Um, and I, I suppose, Sinead, that the, the point here to make is that, you know, the standardised Christmas package that we have today, like the turkey, the puddings, the trifle and all sorts of stuff, they're in many ways, even though they, we think these are abundant and uh, sometimes just overindulgent <clears throat> for us, these were kind of a pared down um, representation of Christmas tables for wealthy people that included a myriad of dishes. Mm. And in, in all of that, we have meat elements and the puddings and the pies and all sorts of stuff. But the other elements that they would have aspired to were these rich uh, cream-based dairy dishes, like various different sugared, highly sugared, cream-based um, confections um, based on, um, you know, the h- high dairy content. And the more so, ornate, the better, yeah. I suppose, as well. Exactly. You know, these yeah. lavish designs. So the trifle is kind of dragging that 
through into the, you know, in, in through the 18th, the 19th, the 20th centuries. So we have, you know, in, in many cases, we'd have the Christmas pudding, but we also want a kind of a fallback or something that people might like in place of the pudding. And here it comes in as the saviour is, is the trifle, mm. you know. And like you said, it's free of the elements that really make heavy and, and make really, I suppose, almost difficult to digest as well in the terms of the puddings and the pies. This is kind of a nice one to go to, but it does pull through from the past this concentration on creamed dishes mm. um, that were very ornate, uh, that whole, had a whole material culture of glassware and so on and vessels around them. And we still do that today as well. The trifle is ornate or ornateness maybe we remember it came in the form of hundreds and thousands <laughs> yeah. maybe in the special maybe glass bowl our mothers okay. had and all sorts of stuff you know all right. uh, which marked us apart again for Christmas time Very good right well it makes me feel nostalgic for the regular turkey and ham maybe and <laughs> I think I'll keep my savoury from my sweet uh, this Christmas uh, Regina Sexton food and culinary historian and food writer thank you so much for joining us with all of that fascinating history on The Home Show Thank you Sinead and happy Christmas And you're very welcome back to the Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan with you. Now, uh, this is usually the time of year we do a stock take of 2023, the good, the bad, the ups, the downs. Well, my next guest has been doing just that, but with a focus on what did and didn't work in his polytunnel. Tom yes. Dorley, columnist with Sunday Times, you're very welcome along to the Thank Home Show. Thank you very much, Sinead. Now, you are a prolific gardener. You've lots of space and all the tunnels. I am <laughs> relieved to hear that you got some of this wrong. Oh, oh. Because it makes I me feel better. So, I got so much of it wrong. <laughs> Prolific is an interesting word. I'm I'm a, I'm an enthusiastic gardener. Enthusiasm isn't always matched with results. But it look, it's the effort that it is. Now you wrote a lovely piece for the Sunday Times uh, about what worked and what didn't work. Let's start with the hits. Uh, of yeah, this yeah, year and what yeah. you got. Now, I was interested to see uh, with all that happened in the British yeah. royal family uh, last yeah. uh, during the year that your Duke of York and British Queen <laughs> potatoes were successes. <laughs> I, I, I have been known to refer to Duke of York potatoes on Twitter, as I insist on still calling it, um, with a quite a rude um, translation, uh, which is very bad of me. But anyway, my Duke of York potatoes, early potatoes, they went in on St. Patrick's Day, as is traditional, and ah, uh, oh, they were they were so so good. Uh, they they sort of came in at the uh, I suppose in the polytunnel. The ones I had in the polytunnel would have come in sort of mid May, mm. and oh, they were so so good. My pink fir apples, isn't that an interesting? Okay, <laughs> fir apples, which is a main crop potato. They're sort of sausage shaped, slightly knobbly. And they're a very good, as they say, salad potato. Mm. But they also, if you if you slice them lengthways, it, you know, um, in a sort of cross, so so you get oddly shaped chips. They crisp up brilliantly. Oh the right, oven. okay. Uh, so they they were they were really really good. I suppose the star of the year, as always, was tomatoes. Now, you see, you say star of the year. It was my abject failure this oh, year. No. All my tomatoes, I usually have a crop for months and months and months. Yeah. But this year, I think I put them out too early and oh. we had all that rain in July and oh, it yeah. was horrific. You were growing them out. And I was. Ah, uh, yeah. I was. It, I mean, it's possible, as you know, yeah. uh, to grow tomatoes outside. But in our climate, the only way you're, you're 
going to be sure of getting anything to eat is to... Is undercover. Is undercover. Yeah. Or, or yeah. in a porch or maybe, uh, you know, um, just in a window. Yeah, no, I think life. you're right. I think you're right. Um, That's the best way. the taste is unbeatable. Oh, unbeatable. As, There's as no know. comparison. There's yeah. no comparison. And actually, you would say the same when it comes to carrots, that other... Yeah. Christmas table staple. That's right. Yeah, I was think you, you know, pe- people talk of the humble spud, but uh, the, the carrot is almost humbler in ways. And it's one of those crops where, like, I don't grow main crop potatoes because it, it's too easy to buy good ones. They take up a lot of space. I've lots of space, but it's time and energy that's lacking, perhaps. But with carrots, again, they're very easy to buy. And, you know, organic carrots in the supermarket are very good. But... There is no substitute for the taste you get from a carrot that you've pulled from the earth. And of course, you can leave them in the earth over winter Mm. and have them absolutely fresh just when you want them. The trick I have found is, and I was sceptical about this, carrot fly is quite a problem if you're growing your own. And there are various ways of preventing carrot flies, which are tiny things from getting into the crop. But what I've done is grow specially selected fly-resistant ones. And I always thought, ah, you know, the flavour won't be as good because they've been tweaked to be disease-resistant. Mm. Oh, the flavour is fantastic. And you're talking about, like, grafting genetics, like... That, well, and, and, no, or it, buying... Sort of F1 hybrid, so, okay. uh, so they've been bred... Somebody else has done that have bit done and created... That, oh, okay. Yeah. And makes it really easy. And there is... There are two varieties I can think of off, offhand. One is called Fly Away, and one is called Resist a Fly. I wonder where they... All oh, right, okay. No, not imagination too much imagination in that. And they're, they're, they're really very dependable. And you also fancy the French green bean. I do. I mean, it's, it's quite a luxurious vegetable. It's a very tender vegetable. So, yeah. yeah, this is where the polytunnel helps. You can grow them outside, of course. Um, but the fact is, most French beans or green beans or um, whatever you want to call them, there are various close relatives that belong to the same sort of category. Yeah. But, you know, when you buy them, they're, they're, going, they're probably from Morocco or Kenya. I know. And, and I don't I, I, get I don't, better I don't, with don't, the flight. No, I, and I don't begrudge the farmers of Morocco and Kenya an occasional French bean, <laughs> but I'd rather have one with welly miles rather than yeah. air, air miles. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know... Okay, now let's talk about the misses, the stuff that that you didn't work out for you, that you weren't mad about. And I'm delighted to say top of the list is the Brussels sprout because anything that gives me a reason not to put it (laughs) on my plate this Christmas will be taken by me. Yeah. Uh, How do you feel about the Brussels sprout, Tom? Well, I feel feel kind of agnostic about the Brussels sprout. Uh, I've had good Brussels sprouts. I'm... I've never said to myself I could murder a Brussels sprout. Now, for anybody who doesn't realise that they don't come in a little netted green bag, (laughs) describe to us how extraordinary the Brussels sprout plant looks. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing of of beauty. Well, I suppose it's in the eye of the beholder, but it's a kind of metre, metre and a half long stick um, with leaves on top, a sort of fringe on top, and then these little little sprouts all the way along the, the yeah. length of the stick. Um, it's very satisfying to to harvest them. Um, they're 
relatively easy to grow. But, you know, uh, pigeons get them, slugs get them, and if you don't plant them very firmly, they, they, they have to have very, very firm roots, yeah. very firm soil around the roots. Keel over. They, they do what they, they call, they, they blow, so they become little little sort of flowery cabbages rather than Oh, those right, tight, the little, tight little ones that little, you need. Little nuggets. And then finally, beetroot. Uh, didn't work for you this year? Uh, well, something it, got a nibble before you did? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I, I, they grew very well at first and I should have harvested them when they were, you know, the size of golf balls and delicious and sweet and all that. Yeah. But I, I, I always leave a few to, um, well, to bulk up and also to leave in the ground so that they're fresh when I pick it. And they have been nibbled and I'm hoping by mice, but some of the teeth marks have been large. Oh dear, right. Ugh, that's, something that's, with the longer tail and bigger teeth. <laughs> it, it's, it, it takes the appeal away oh. from beetroot, which I love. So, I'm sure it yeah. does. All right, so you'll be giving that a bit maybe next year or making sure you get it all well, in early. I'll be, I'll be very careful. All right. And what <laughs> veg will be on your Christmas dinner table this year, Tom? Well, roast potatoes in goose fat, absolutely essential. Yeah. Brussels sprouts, fairly compulsory in our family. Yeah. Um, carrots, um, there will be a really, really good cauliflower cheese because one of our guests is a uh, pescatarian. Wonderful. And uh, that will... Um, also, it, it, you know, really good cauliflower cheese doesn't have to be a side dish. It, no, it, absolutely. It can be a main, it's very substantial. Main, you Brilliant. Know. All right. Tom, thanks a million as always. And of course, Pleasure. you can catch Tom in the Sunday Times every Sunday. And he has lots of great uh, tips for outdoors uh, and planting and all of that, which keeps you busy all year round. Uh, Tom, thanks a million. That was Tom Dorley, columnist with the Sunday Times. Now, the protection and conservation of our built heritage is not something that just miraculously happens on its own. It's a responsibility shared between building owners and custodians, skilled craftspeople and local authorities. Uh, But it doesn't come cheap. But did you know you can avail of grants and funding uh, to help them do their part? Donnock Cahill, Executive Director of the Irish Georgian Society, joins me now. Uh, Donnock, you're very welcome to the Home Show Good morning, Sinead. Now, what are the primary challenges in restoring and and conserving our older built heritage? The... um that I wouldn't like to see them as challenges. I'd say there's opportunities <laughs> right, to, to ensure the preservation of our architectural heritage, and um, that the, the, that there is protection for our, our historic building stock that's provided through the the Planning and Development Act 2000. So that there are there are expectations on the part of protected structure owners to look after and to maintain their buildings, and to address that and to support that, there are also government grants to ensure that the burden doesn't fall solely on the part of the protected structure owner. Mm. So there, there are two primary sorts of, uh, sources of grant aid available from government, um, both of which are active now. So if you have a protected structure and you plan doing works next year, take a look at your, your local authority website to see how to access these grants. So the first of which is the Built Heritage Investment Scheme. Now, there is um, national funding, I believe, of about €4.5 million euro, um, to support various types of work. So those works can include... Um, repairs to to roof works, to windows, to internal and external features. You can get support as well for for professional fees, with the grants varying from um, I think two and a half thousand euro up to fifteen thousand euro. Mm. 
There's also a smaller sum of money that's available um, that will enable protected structure owners to undertake essential maintenance works. Now, separate from that, there's a, a fund called the Historic Structures Fund. The Historic Structures Fund is intended to um, support larger capital works that also have a community benefit, and that latter part being rather important. Um, the funding the funding for that program can range from 15,000 to 200,000. It's broken into two, two streams, the first of which runs from 15 to 50,000, and the second of which goes from 50 to 200,000. Now, the funding for that nationally also is about four and a half million euro. But obviously, that the money has to go an awful lot. That 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 as as there are fewer projects um, that are supported, mm. um, because the larger larger amount of funding available. And what are the criteria? I mean, when you say a protected structure, is it that's under the actual um, act that that names your property or your building or your house as yeah. listed or protected well, in a certain way. So you have to you have to presumably then abide by the yeah. way it's done as much as doing it itself. Well, well your your property was, is protected. Um, it's, it's it's protected through the provisions of the the county development plan or the city development plan. Um, and if you're looking to undertake works to the building, it, if if there are significant works, it might well be that you need to um, talk with your local conservation officer to get mm. advice as to whether or not planning permission will be required for um, mm. for what you intend to do. Um, with regards to the, the uh, grant application, so in submitting your grant application, you need to ensure that the works you're undertaking are in accordance with the provisions of a publication that came out over, over uh, 10 years ago um, by the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage um, on um, architectural heritage protection guidelines. So there's a lot of rules then around, I mean, you know, the protection and making sure that you get it done by qualified artisans. Are they hard to find, Dunnock, nowadays or or, or well, is it no, fairly straightforward? One, one thing is certain that they're all very busy nowadays. <laughs> oh, but right. There are certain sources that are helpful in trying to find information about them and trying to get details of them. So the Irish Georgian Society operates a traditional building skills register on our website. Um, the website is igs.ie and that'll list joiners and plasterers and thatchers and roofers and so on and so mm. forth. And it's a nationwide um, database. Some local authority conservation officers will also operate a local um, traditional building skills mm. register which is a very useful source of information. Now, and you in the Arch Georgian Society, you have a grant system available also. Tell me what that covers. We do indeed. Well, the, 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 over the course of the last 20 years that the Irish Georgian Society has supported over 160 projects and we've awarded 1.6 million euro in grant, um, in grant aid. The, the type of projects we support are very similar to those um, under the, the Built Heritage Investment Scheme or the Historic Structures Fund. So we, again, we support roof repairs and window repairs and so on. Mm. Um, the size of our grants is quite small, so it can range from maybe 2,000 to 5,000 euro. But in exceptional circumstances, it might, it might be considerably more than that. Mm. The, um, this this uh, programme will be, will be looking for applications from mid-January, probably the closing date will be mid-February. And then we announce the, the grant recipients um, maybe around late April. All right, good to know. And um, I know that I do hear from time to time from people who maybe have a structure that is older, maybe Georgian, Victorian. They can find it very hard, whatever about the repairs and the maintenance, which is expensive and and long-winded, but to get insurance even. And uh, it is a tricky, like you don't take on one of these properties lightly. 
Well, with regards to insurance, the first thing that I'd recommend um, individuals to do is to get in touch with their broker. Now, their broker might already have have familiarity with mm-hmm. insuring protected structures. If they got contact their broker and they don't have that familiarity, what you can do is that there are specialist brokers out there, such as Castlake or Irish Heritage Insurance, and they then work with specialist insurance firms. There's one in particular called Ecclesiastical, um, and they provide uh, insurance cover for, for a protected structure. Okay. Good to know. All right. Well, listen, you've obviously got a busy year ahead. You'll be doing all those grants in the springtime so people can get their applications in. Uh, Donna Cahill, Executive Director of the Irish Georgian Society. Thanks for joining us on The Home Show. What else is going to be? You're going to dip it in yogurt, cover it with chocolate buttons. Who knows? We're going to pop it in the Christmas box. But I don't want a Christmas box. But you said you wanted it gift wrapped. I did, but... This is the final flourish. Can I just pay? All we need now... Oh, God. ...is a sprig of holly. No, 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 no bloody holly. But say that... Uh, leave it, leave it, just leave it. And you're very welcome back to The Home Show here on News Talk. Now, some people love doing it, while others find it tricky to get everything into the right position and even get stuck together if it becomes impossible. But when it's done right, a well-wrapped gift can almost outshine the actual gift itself. Yes, that was Rowan Atkinson as the pernickety sales assistant from Love, actually. And I'm hoping my next guest makes things a little easier than that when it comes (laughs) to wrapping. Jennifer Sheehan, former Home of the Year winner, welcome back to The Home Show. Delighted to be here. You like a bit of gift wrap? That, you know what, that scene cracks me up. I think it's so funny. There's a theory out there I, I found when I was researching this that he was an angel meant to interrupt the whole affair. Oh, I see. Yes. Oh, right. So okay. we'll dive into that one another day. But I that's have the to idea. say, Alan Rickman's performance in that scene is is as good as... The little facial expression. Yeah. <laughs> Fury. Can we be quite, Just quite quick? <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. All brilliant. right. Now, yeah. we are talking things, wrapping a gift yes. and all of that thing because, um, you know, it is an important part and I yeah. like the idea. Um, now, and it's not to overtake the fact that you've bought something kind of cheap and cheerful and you want to make <laughs> it look fabulous, but it can work. But if you've bought something expensive, you definitely don't want to miss out on the wrap yeah. by sticking it in a brown paper bag. No, and I, I've even had gifts where the gift wrapping is, I prefer it because somebody's put a lot of thought into it, you know, and whatever yeah. is behind it is nice. But it's lovely when people put thought into things. And I, I love gift wrapping, but I also love things being very, very easy. Like I'm not going to spend the next week sitting on the floor in my living room mm. surrounded by ribbons and potpourri and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, yeah easy okay, so I suppose the easiest place to start is the bag of bags yeah. that we all have in our kitchen. The gift bags, the, gift bag. the wine bags, stuff we've kind of collated through yeah. the year. Uh, and that's a good thing to recycle, isn't it? Yeah, it's perfect. I have, a, I have a special press for all my gift bags. If I see a nice one, I'll pick it up. Never write somebody's name on the label because it needs to be reusable or on it yeah. or try not to put a sticker on it. You know, sometimes people like to put a little sticker to close mm. the bag and, and that's fine. Try to use a ribbon instead or something else or just cover it over with paper, you know, that lovely tissue paper. I mean, there's nothing worse than somebody handing you, say, a bottle of wine in a beautiful wine bag and then on on the label it says to Pat yeah. from David. <laughs> <laughs> and your name is Joanne. Oh, <laughs> Not right. involved in okay. that exchange. So gift bags, make sure they're clean, yeah. clear, um, preferably unused, but if they're reusing them, don't mess them up. Yeah. By, by and if you do have a little tear, you know, from an old piece of celtip or something, just stick a little rosette on it, mm. you know, like a little mm. bow or tinsel or something like that. Now, the wrapping itself, we had last week, we had in... Um, 
an artist who Liz Clark who did all this Japanese art of which the name escapes me now of wrapping with fabric Uh, and it was absolutely gorgeous yeah beautiful Um, but there's lots and lots of tutorials you can get online about wrapping gifts properly there's loads now this is this is a difficult one to describe on the air but one of the favourite ones that I've seen involves almost kind of pleating the wrapping and it it ends up looking like a plait like a hair plait and there's all sorts of folding involved and, and everything but what that results in is lots of folds on the gift where you can tuck little things inside like a little gift card sticking out of one fold and then you could have like a little sprig of holly and a little bit of cinnamon and you could go full Rowan Atkinson and stick in whatever you like. Would you be well? Yeah. <laughs> Where would you get the time? I just think that, that looks really, really cute and I always think as well especially if you're wrapping something that isn't like I always think a gift if it's a gift card or if it's a voucher or you know a Revolut card with money on it or something like that then going a bit extra with that wrapping is a really nice touch I think. Yeah and it is nice if all you're giving is a gift card and yeah. why not yeah. then at least bring out the tissue paper a nice bag yeah. maybe a bit of tinsel around the handle or something like that. I love that. So I did that for my mum this year. I got her a voucher for the ABBA Voyage. Tickets. Oh, tickets for ABBA. Listen, does she know? She knows, she knows, she knows, she knows. Um, it was for her birthday. So tickets for ABBA Voyage. But what I did was I printed out a nice little kind of itinerary put it into a nice really, really nice box reusable box. I've, it's gotten through quite a few gifts and they got her like a sparkly top that we'll wear you know to oh, the experience so something fabulous. that goes with the experience or goes with the voucher even if it's really small yeah. in a nice box can be so nice because you're unwrapping something then which That's is lovely That's a fantastic idea and I've been to Abba Void Oh I can't wait to absolutely wait. amazing so she will love it she will love it she will love it and the glitzy top is now mandatory yeah. I think yeah, you won't put in without it <laughs> so, a full so glitter a brilliant ball. thing So lo- lovely to do that actually if you're giving somebody an experience yeah. is to do up a little itinerary about the day and the time and maybe some hints about where they're going and that kind of thing. Is yeah, okay. very nice. Um, now, making your own kind of working with brown paper. There's yeah. nothing nicer than brown paper, by the way. It I, looks I think so it's beautiful. with twine or, or, you know, something. You you make it special for me. Yeah, and I even, I was saying before I got one of, a present I'd gotten before, the wrapping, I, I preferred the wrapping almost to the gift, which was lovely. But it was in newspaper. So brown paper or newspaper is such a sustainable way to do your wrapping. And all, you know, to spruce it up, there's a million different things you can do. You Twine wrapped around it and then a little Christmas ornament in it, like a sprig of holly or a little pine cone tied into it or something, or even chocolates. You know, little wrapped, kind of foil wrapped chocolates that you can kind of tie onto it or a little candy cane or something like that is really nice. And then you can also colour it. So, okay, if you're a great painter or you're a great drawer or something like that, an artist... Then there's lots that you can do to obviously decorate the bag, but you can also make little stamps. You can even buy little stamps, but you can cut out little sponges. If we throw our minds back to primary school yeah. and you can cut little shapes out of sponges and you can stamp little, you know, Christmas decor, like a little shape of holly or something like that stamped all over it. And then what's lovely is even if you just have a very simple bag, you know, like a brown paper bag or a white paper bag, which you can buy in bulk and they're very recyclable. Um, if you fold over the top of it a few times and staple it closed and then put punch two holes in it and then tie a ribbon through it and tie it into oh, a bow. Right, you're that's your a own beautiful bag. gift bag then and you, you know you can add your little touches onto that if you like and as well. if you've got kids isn't this a super project because no, you know you get your kids working on that to do finger painting or drawing or whatever nobody's going to take that off and say fun. what how what a mess. cute would that be I would love cute. that yeah, yeah it is really beautiful sweet. okay and then when it comes to sustainable options so that's mm. a brilliant one right there those, yeah. those plain paper bags or the newspaper uh, now you're saying like avoid 
say foil or oh, yeah. those metallic is it, they're just not recyclable they're just not as recyclable because it's combined material so it's not as easy for the recycle centre to take apart the paper and, and they don't so try to avoid foil and I even saw if you're really into recycling I saw a great 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 tip which is raffia palm which is you know these long strands of oh, kind yeah. of um, they look, kind of almost look like twine but mm. they're, they're made from palm leaf and it's dried palm and they tie into a lovely bow so fully recyclable there. Now, I know that you are also, uh, in addition to your many wrapping skills <laughs> and all of the rest of it, uh, a great baker. So yeah. uh, you love the biscuits and the cookies and edible gifts and all of that. So bring us through a few uh, nice ways that we can offer that for Christmas. Yeah, love it. And this is a great one at Christmas. So I'm going to blow past mince pies because, you know, they're lovely, but everyone can make mince pies. So my, I'm going to start with my absolute favourite one. I think this is such a great gift any time of year, but you can make it Christmassy with a couple of little touches. And that is my cookie jar. It's not my cookie jar. Well, I've made it my cookie jar. So this is all you need is a clear jar, any clear jar. So one that you've kept from, you know, an old thing of jam or something like that. You need it to be quite, quite a big, you know, a big enough one. And then you find the recipe to nice cookies or even a hot chocolate or brownies or anything you like and then layer them. So measure them out, all the dry ingredients, measure them out and then layer them into the jar in kind of alternating colours. So, you know, if you have flour, do flour and then the cocoa powder and then the sugar and then the brown Mm. sugar, whatever it might be. And then write the recipe on a lovely label. So the person you're giving it to is going to need to add the wet ingredients, so whatever it might be, an egg or some butter or some milk or something like that, and write the recipe and then you you give that. And then at Christmas, it can be lovely if, you know, say if you're doing chocolate chip cookies to have, just pick out the kind of red and green M&Ms or something like that oh. from a packet and then you can have really <laughs> nice ones top. or All right. crushed up peppermint cane or something like that. So that is such a nice one. I think that's really pretty. And then people can make it in their own time and, you know, it's a bit of an activity ah, to do over fantastic. Christmas. All right. Lovely, very lovely easy. idea. Now, gingerbread biscuits and gingerbread, gingerbread houses biscuits. and all of that are very popular. I wouldn't go so far now as, as the house, but uh, gingerbread, <laughs> little men and women and Santas and all that kind of thing. This is one of the easiest things to make. Gingerbread is, is, is super, super easy. There's no such thing as, you know, rising the dough you don't have to let it chill for too long it's very uh, it's very not temperamental it doesn't go wrong mm. too often and really the only thing you need once you've got the gingerbread dough made is some nice little shaped cookie cutters so you'll get them anywhere even Dunn's or Tesco have them or if you're really artistic what you can do is you can get a can so an empty can of beer there's probably lots of those lying around over Christmas <laughs> or coke or anything and cut it out and then just, you know, fold it over in half and then bend the shape into, you know, a little sprig of holly or something kind of easy. So you could print out the shape on a piece of paper and then just, you know, bend and twist the, the metal from the can, the strip of metal that you've cut Whoa. from the can. And what? then you have a whole DIY cookie cutter and you can make whatever shape you want. So that would be easy, you know, for a snowman or <laughs> an ivy leaf. It okay. might be harder for, you know, a reindeer or a snowflake yeah. or something like that. But for something simple, that can be really easy and it's and it's super simple. So, yeah. Now, my absolute favourite... Uh, and by that I mean my husband's absolute favourite uh, are the chocolate truffles which I make every single year uh, and they are absolutely gorgeous because Nothing they're easier. so rich they're so decadent they are literally I am not a baker nobody yeah. would ever accuse me of that <laughs> uh, but they actually are the easiest thing I mean you can't go wrong with chocolate truffles they're so easy so all you need for chocolate truffles are one one to one chocolate and heavy cream I add in a bit of butter. When I mean one-to-one, what I mean is, or when I say one-to-one, what I mean is, for example, a 200 gram bar of dark chocolate, you need 200 grams mm. of heavy cream. Mm. And, and, or if it's 100 and 100 and whatever. And then I, I do add in maybe about a teaspoon of, of butter. Oh, do you? Proper I salted. Add in like little, yeah. 
a glob of Baileys. Oh, well, so this is the next step. You can add in, so you could swap out some of the cream for Baileys. You could also add in, you know, if you wanted to do some uh, zest of orange, if you wanted orange truffles, you could put in some almond uh, essence Mm -hmm. or whatever you wanted. You can do any flavour. But if it's something like Baileys cream, swap it out for the amount of cream that you're putting in because otherwise they'll get too gloopy. And then you just put that all, mix it all together. So heat up the cream on the pan, don't let it burn, pour it over the chopped up chocolate, mix it all together till it's smooth, let it cool down in the fridge and then when it's cool, just pick, you know, take out a little spoon and roll it up into yeah, a or ball even like in your hand. Melon baller that sits in your well. If you're very fancy and you've got a proper melon baller, <laughs> you've no idea what you do it with, and you don't have melons. Uh, that's when it comes into its own, yeah. and then and then you, you can, can dip them it. in anything. Yeah. yeah, cocoa is the is the obvious one, yeah. isn't it? Or, or maybe desiccated coconut, or yeah, or you could grate some chocolate, white chocolate, or something like that, and dip it into that. Look, beautiful. Okay, yeah. can't go wrong with that, and they always look fab. Put yeah. them in a beautiful box, bit of tissue paper. I mean, that's as cheap. I mean, if you're still and you know someone's coming that evening or the next day and you've forgotten their present mm. <laughs> mm. so easy and nice very good all right and of course when we're wrapping those um, that you can make them then as lavish as possible yeah. because the gift hasn't cost you like a whole heap and uh, whether it's gingerbread men or the truffles or whatever Fabulous box. Yeah. Cellophane, tissue paper, Cellophane bows. is my favourite one. I always do this because boxes are great and especially tins are brilliant. But then you have to have the right size for the thing that you want. And that's, you know, you can't have every single size stored in your house. Not my house anyway. So I always get a big roll. You can buy compostable cellophane if you're into the environment. And I always get a big roll of that. And then you can just layer it with a bit of tissue paper and wrap it up and put a yeah. bow in it. And then you have anything wrapped. In it's fantastic. So and it looks great then yeah. when you present it. Beautiful. All right. Well, listen, you can check out all of that. I'm now going to put you under pressure to put all of that up on your Instagram page uh, which is Workers Cottage and you can find Jenny there and all of our fantastic ideas and um, Jenny you'd be back with us for our special show on the 30th of December uh, with our panel of guests on Love's and loathes of 2023 uh, design. So I am sure that you are getting involved in that now and thinking up all the stuff you loved and hated over the year. But for now, let me say happy Christmas to you. Happy. And uh, we will see you on the other side. Yes, absolutely. And that is all we have time for this week on The Home Show. If you'd like to get involved or get in touch with us, you can do so by email at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You'll find me over on Instagram uh, at Sinead Ryan 100. And if you'd like to share a designer with us or a tip or somebody you'd like us to have on or a topic you'd like us to cover especially uh, in 2024 we would love to hear from you uh, all about that thank you to Simon Keane producing this week Aoife Breen uh, Hugh Keenan was on research and Stephen McLoon on sound The Home Show with Sinead Ryan Saturday morning at 8 with Daikin on News Talk.